Welcome to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast, presented by Zenium HR. I'm your host, Brandon Laws. Whether you're an HR professional or a small business leader, each episode of this podcast is designed to bring you the latest in technical HR and leadership at your convenience. More content is available on our website at www.zeniumhr.com. Let's dive into today's topic. Welcome to the Human Resources for Small Business Podcast. This is your host, Brandon Laws. Today I'm with Thomas Cox. He is the discoverer of the only universal truth of leadership. He's consulted with many large companies, including IBM, and he's the author of over 300 articles on leadership. You can actually read a lot of his work at TomOnLeadership.com. And uh, most recently, we did a webinar together, and this is how we came up with the topic for today. Thomas did uh, a great webinar on the unspoken language of accountability. And if you want to see his work there and just see him just rock it on the webinar, you can go to www.zeniumhr.com forward slash HR hyphen resources forward slash webinars, and you can download that there. Thomas, it's awesome to have you. Brandon, I always enjoy talking with you on these important topics, and you've got such a great audience, people who really care about human effectiveness. They care about their people and making them better, and that's why I love the webinar so much. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to the podcast. Yeah, and so when we when we got together for the webinar, we were like, trust. Have We, we haven't done anything on trust, and we got really excited about that, we decided to connect and, and do something on trust. So I wanted to just kind of ask you this this point blank question, just what your opinion is. Naturally, are we trusting as a human species generally, just right off the bat? I think human beings are built for trust and cooperation. And we are also built to detect when our trust partners are ripping us off and letting us down. And so cooperation is such a powerful technique. Cooperation is so bred into our bones that there will always be people or you know, people plus a certain opportunity where uh, someone will try to take advantage of us. And so in order to really be good at cooperation, you've also got to be just a little bit cautious, a little bit self-protective, a little bit careful. And I think the reason right, maybe right now today, as we're recording this, that people feel trust is at an all-time low, it's actually because we need it so much. And we're actually kind of used to having quite a lot of trust. I mean, when was the last time somebody sold you poisoned food? When was the last time? I mean, on ne- purpose. Never. Right. <laughs> when was the last time? Right. And, and we can go down the line. But the vast majority of our lives are spent in highly trusting relationships and, this is even more interesting, highly trusting transactions, right? Because humans have kind of a small circle of people we know pretty darn well. You and I, we've interacted dozens and dozens of times. I consider you a warm acquaintance or a distant friend. We're somewhere in that, in that region, but you're not a stranger. And so when you and I interact, we're building our relationship over time. You've got space in your head for 180 people, plus or minus 20, that you have that kind of relationship with over time. 180, that's Dunbar's number. And that's how much our brains can hold. And beyond that, it's all transactions. And this is what's so wacky, is we trust people we've never met all the time, in part because of things like brand, Mm -hmm. in part because of things like, well, it's coming to us through an intermediary. So if I, you know, I don't drink Coke anymore, but back when I did, 
uh, when I was consuming beverages that contained sugar, I wouldn't have a second thought about opening a Coke and drinking it because I had just come to accept that the, the bottler was probably on the up and up and the company was on the up and up and, and I could trust that that brand. The brand was a stand-in for the individual. And you and I create and destroy trust all the time with our relationships. And when we do it transactionally again and again, our brand starts to suffer. See, I'm distinguishing here between our relationships and our transactions. Relationship, inner circle, transactions with, with strangers. And for people here on, on, on the call, both of those are going to be crucially, crucially important because your coworkers have relationships with you. Your customers may have a transaction with you. So while people rely on and get to know you better in relationship, your, your, your coworkers, your boss, your subordinates, your suppliers, your regular customers, they've all got relationships with you and they can get to know you and they can either get really sour or really sweet on you, depending on how you behave. But the, the, the buying public, they will judge you on their most recent transaction and they'll just, that's, that's who you are. You know, if they got a bad bottle of Coke, Coke is just evil. The whole company top to bottom, side to side. You see, you see how quick we are to, to judge. That, that's why I think understanding the mechanics of trust is so incredibly important. In, in largely because we live on it, we rely on it, but we don't really understand it. The point about transactions is so right. And I think back in, in Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he, he talked about the emotional bank account. And I think what you're saying is, is very similar to that. And I, I think when you relate it to business, a brand, or people, those microtransactions of what they, what they do, whether it's positive or negative, those take a toll mm-hmm. on that emotional bank account and the level of trust that you eventually see towards them. So I want to ask you this. When you, when you think about we were born into a family that we pretty much automatically trust because of those, those transactions that, that are happening, usually positive, and then friends, kind of same thing. Maybe the neighbors, community, coworkers, every group is a little different. Do you think one group is harder to trust than, than another? I mean, you talk about strangers, but coworkers, leaders, those are, those are the people we're seeing a lot of nowadays in the workplace. Right. And, and we're, you read the, the news and there's breakdowns of trust right and left. This bank is ripping off their customers. That executive is stealing from the firm. This other company is polluting and lying about it, on and on and on. And what I would love to have our listeners take away from this is that there are three ways we create trust with the people around us. And I'm going to give you a couple of tools here, a a way to think about trust that's going to empower you both to show up as highly trustworthy in the eyes of other people, and it'll help you debug what it is you're not trusting about that other person so you can actually ask them to change. And maybe they will, maybe they won't, but at least you now know what to ask for. And this is the building blocks of trust. There's three building blocks. And I'm going to run, I'll just keep repeating this again and again. So don't have to take notes. I'll just repeat it a lot. One's reliability, one's competence, and one is benevolence. I'll explain those. So reliability is, do I show up on time? Do I do the things I say I do? If I say I'll be there at 2 o'clock on Tuesday, can you look at your watch at 1.59 and confidently expect me to walk in at 2? Or in some cases, I've there you know, a few minutes early because that's my style. And when you are so used to me being super reliable, that part of you relaxes and you begin to trust. Reliability is the first thing we can demonstrate when it comes to trust. The absolute first thing, and it's where most people fail. Uh, how many times have you called a company, left a voicemail, nobody ever got back to you? <laughs> Too frequently. Uh, in fact, it's so bad that 
and maybe this is a Pacific Northwest thing. I think this is happening more in our neck of the woods here in the uh, Washington, Oregon area, maybe than other parts of the country. I call it Pacific Northwest passive aggressive, where people don't say no, they just ignore you. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're spot on. True story. There's this company here in town, you know, sort of prestigious consultancy. They got gorgeous offices or hosting an event. I went there. I got to kind of like them. I was kind of impressed with him. I wanted to talk to their the director of the practice locally and uh, get to know him a little bit. Maybe I can refer clients to him. Maybe I can find ways to help him out. You know, get, get a good impression, right? Left him a voicemail, sent him an email, left him a voicemail. No reply, no reply, no reply. Waited a week, another email, no reply. Waited a week, another voicemail, no reply. Left a voicemail in the general mailbox, no reply. I was in touch with or trying to be in touch with another one of his colleagues, a, a mid-level consultant, the same company. And in parallel, call, email, call, no reply from either of them for a month. And here you're trying to like help them out. And I'm like, really? Yeah. What if I were like a client who wanted to hire you? I think what's happened is like I get I get a ton of sales calls. And so my trust level of when I pick up the phone, another person on the other side is going to just be oh, selling, hey, hey, hey. selling something. I think that's that, that's why the sure, trust sure, is Sure, sure, sure. I get yeah. that. I, I get that. And, you know, if somebody calls you and they leave a voicemail and you don't call them back, you're saying something about the kind of person you are as well as how you hold them. And if someone leaves me an unsolicited phone call, unsolicited voicemail, they want to sell me something, I have no, no problem ignoring that call. But if I've met you, we've exchanged business cards, and I leave you a voicemail and an email, and I say, hey, so when you, so you wanted to talk some more, you did that to me, I would reply to you and I would say, dude, I have no time for that. I am really sorry. I love it that you want to meet with me, and, and, yeah. and the answer is no. And I, <laughs> and I am, uh, I'm flattered you want to meet. I'm sorry I can't. And the answer is no, and it's for a reason. And I'm, I'm really, you know, delighted you reached out to me, and I'm hoping that maybe that'll change in a month or two. Might might calm down around here. You see how much more respected you feel when I reply to you, and that's how reliability plays out. Now, when it comes to reliability, you know, can I predict this person's behavior? I expect if I refer to a potential customer to these turkeys. But that customer would be treated just like I was. You see how we generalize from our own experiences. And so when I say trust rests on three pillars and reliability is the first, that's what I mean. And it doesn't take hours and hours to be reliable. I'm just, I'm just, I have to reliably call you back and say, nope, can't do it, sorry, bye. Boom. And I have replied. And I've shown you the dignity of taking you seriously and replying to your email and voicemail. So again, reliability is also another word for accountability. And we did a whole webinar on accountability. And all that really means, accountability, is that your words and your actions match. Some people call that integrity. Your words and your actions match. It's crazy to me that we have to do webinars and podcasts and read books on accountability when it's as simple as what you just stated. You know, it's showing up. It's doing what you say you're going to do. It's, cra <laughs> it's crazy. It's so, so fundamental to me. Yes and no. And Brandon, part of it has to do with you know the fact that you're a very solid guy and you were brought up in a certain way, mm. uh, and you're embedded in a culture that's a fairly direct communication culture. What if you were from an Asian culture where communication is very indirect? It's very rare, for instance, for a Japanese person to say no. They have a word for no. It's almost never used. But they have our versions of yes that mean no. <laughs> I was amazed to hear that. I've read that, I've read that before. <laughs> never experienced it. Yeah, when I was uh, living in Chicago working for a PR agency, Golden Harris, we had a big Japanese client. We hired a guy to come in and tell us about Japanese culture. And this guy explained that, look, they won't say no to your face. They'll say a really like indirect, soft, yeah, sure, one of these days, maybe we can get around to that. That's no. 
uh, as opposed to, oh, totally, get your calendar out, let's make this happen. That's more like a yes. And so they're talking, they're talking. At the end of it, our owner, the top guy says, hey, that's great. Would you be willing to help me some more on this? And, you know, would you give me some more free consulting? Basically, he asked. And the guy said, yeah, well, you know, maybe I might possibly. Gave him a classic Japanese no. And he thought it was a yes because he wasn't paying attention. Hmm. And so, you know, two people who share cultural assumptions can communicate beautifully. When you and I have different assumptions, it goes to heck really fast. Because I thought, from my culture, I was clearly saying no in a very polite, indirect way. And you thought it was this weird, squishy yes. And so our expectations are mismatched. And the setting of expectations and the meeting of expectations are what reliability is. And that's why we have to have classes on it, because we come from different uh, family systems. We come from different communication styles. And some of us, frankly, feel terrified to say no at times. Or we feel we have to say yes to make the other person feel good in the moment. And then we're like, ah, oh, what did I just sign up for? And we overload ourselves with work. You'll see people who say yes to everything and, and get overwhelmed with work. Every office has at least one of those. So when I say trust rests on three pillars and reliability is one, oh my gosh, we could spend the entire podcast uh, digging into the depths of reliability. And I want to touch on the other two. So if you really want to get into reliability slash accountability, that webinar can be replayed. It was really good. Yeah. So let's talk about the next two. Reliability is doing what you say you were going to do, but that's not enough for people to truly trust you deeply because what if you're not competent? What if you don't have the expertise? What if you can't bring the heat? Okay, so I could show up on time for the podcast or I could show up on time for a speech or show up on time for a class and, hey, Tom's so reliable, that's great. And I get up there and I don't deliver the goods. You know, it's like everyone's got that web developer they've tried to hire who says, oh, I can do that for you. I could totally do that mm-hmm. for you. And they, they can't do it. Been there, done that. And, you know, and you're like, what? They replied rapidly to email. They showed up for meetings. Since they're not busy. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have any work. He seems pretty solid, but somehow the competence just isn't there. If you've been doing your job for more than a few years, you've probably got the competence thing going. And you can ask people, hey, how, how am I doing with something I can do better at? Or you can just look through your email for the last two months and browse the which email threads involve problems and mistakes and things you could have done better. It's a great crash course on how to grow your expertise. I don't spend a lot of time working on that one because most people intuitively want to be good, they want to do well, and they tend to work on their craft. If you're working on your expertise, I think you're probably fine. And you have to be sure that the expertise you think you're bringing is the expertise they thought you were going to bring. That might be one area to check in. So reliability is huge, competence, pretty straightforward. Third leg, I call it benevolence. It's a way of showing that you care. You're going to put the other person's agenda ahead of your own agenda some of the time, not all the time. You're not their servant. You're not a martyr. You're not going to do their work before your own. But it's also not never, not always, not never. Because if it were never, try to imagine this. You're trying to trust me. I'm highly competent and highly reliable. But I'm really, really selfish. It's the Tom Show starring Tom. And, you know, I'll engage in a win-win or a win-lose as long as I win. Whoa! Once you learn that about me, your trust in me is very limited. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you have the other two things. Yeah, every time we shake hands, you're going to stop and count your fingers to see if I stole one. (laughs) Every deal we make, you're going to have to have it reviewed by lawyers. Everything I offer you, you got to, like, sniff it to see if it's poison. So, yeah, without that benevolence, the other two, it just means that you're good at serving your interests. What about serving mine? 
And so you demonstrate benevolence in part by doing things like, you know, Mr. Cox, you're going a little fast here, but I'm going to let you off with a warning. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Just this time. Giving people a pass occasionally on a rule, especially if they show remorse or they're serious, is one of the ways that we, in a position of power, can show that we were also reasonably benevolent. Or, hmm, I see you're really struggling here. Let me take a little time to work with you on it. Or, hmm, I'll tell you what. I don't think we got as much done in this hour as we could have, so uh, I'm not going to charge a full fee for this last hour. You admitted you didn't do all your work coming in. Frankly, I think I could have been better prepared as well. Giving up revenue, I don't recommend it. Your sales managers out there are going, no, never, never do that. But that is one way to do it. Another is I just go on the extra mile for somebody. Interestingly enough, when you let somebody down, how you handle that can actually build more trust than if you never had a problem in the first place. Let me explain. So let's say um, I'm supposed to take care of some task for you, Brandon. You, you trusted me, you delegated this thing to me, or you've hired me, or whatever. And I got to get this thing to you by Thursday so you can get stuff done on Friday. And Thursday comes and Thursday goes, and I'm like, I can't make it. <laughs> and so as soon as I know I'm late, I don't wait. As soon as I know, I might even call you on Wednesday if I know that Thursday no work. I'm going to say, Brandon, look, I'm super sorry. I'm going to be late. And I know that puts you in a hole. So I'm willing to come in this weekend and help you. I, I know I just threw you into work on the weekend. So sorry for that. I'm going to come in and help you this weekend as well to help you get through this. Now, depending on our relationship, maybe, maybe neither one of us really expects me to do that. So if I can do the unexpected extra thing, if it shows I'm paying more attention, if I show that I have a little piece of you inside of me, or I have a little, I have a little copy of Brandon in my head, and I care about that Brandon, and I show that I care through my actions, through my attention, through my thoughtfulness, those are the things that tell you that when it comes to you know, that arm's length transaction or that much closer sort of relationship, I actually have, I feel like I have a relationship with you and you matter to me. When the Tylenol scare came and there was that, that poisoning that the Tylenol was tampered with and a woman died, it turned out it was her husband who murdered her, but there was a lot of fear that Tylenol had been tampered with in the market. They literally pulled every bottle off the shelf, including the ones that they knew were perfectly safe because they knew they were safe, but we didn't know they were safe. And they took a huge financial hit and all their financial analysts were saying, dude, that's stupid. You're going to waste all this money. Yeah. It's a perfectly good product. And they said, you know, we can't really say that our customers matter to us if we're like, yeah, these are safe. But no, you've got to have confidence. You, the customer, must have confidence in our product. If you lose confidence, we're just going to pull up and find it takes a big financial hit, but that's worth it to us. That's an investment in a relationship right there. And it seems like if you fail on the accountability side, at least at the kind of the transactional level, like in the case of Tylenol, if you can show that you can make up for it in caring and really show some remorse for what you're doing and do the right thing, I think people then will forgive you and you can g gain that trust back in the same case. And people trusted the makers of Tylenol more after that event than before because they compared the actual behavior with what they expected a typical company would probably do in the same circumstance. They're like, wow, I didn't know if my employer would have done that. And you did. They suffered financially, and, and it was very difficult for the company emotionally. I mean, the employees were mortified that someone had been harmed by their product. They make things that help people. And 
when in a crisis you can come through showing a lot of benevolence, a lot of competence, and you repair your reliability, people's trust in you can skyrocket. Now, I don't recommend that you screw up on purpose just to have that opportunity. Fortunately, most of us don't have to do it on purpose. We'll manage to create a few opportunities just by accident. Nevertheless, reliability, competence, benevolence, work on those three in yourself. Others will trust you. Now, what do you do with the other person that you don't trust them? I wanted to give you three quick tools you can use with anybody around you where you're having some struggle, think, wow, I really don't trust them as much as I wish I could. And the first is to understand what it is that they're doing and not doing that's making you feel that way, right? You feel the feeling without always knowing the why. Trust your feeling. It's an ancient part of the brain. It's highly attuned to the need for trust. Your spider sense will tingle. Your little radar will go bing, even if you don't know why. But if you want to shift the relationship, you've got to know why. So ask yourself, are they letting me down when it comes to reliability? Or are they letting me down with regard to competence? Or do I feel let down with regard to their benevolence? Which of those three is it that most feels like it's out of whack with this other person? Now, I've done this many times with uh, rooms full of people who are working on trust building and understanding how trust works, the mechanics of it. And people say, you know, I ask them, think of a person that you wish you had a better trusting relationship with. Write the name down. Okay, now write down a few words to sort of express the nature of the issue between you and the other person. And then I make them think about, is it reliability? If only they were more reliable, it would be different. Or is it competence? If only they were more competent, it would be different. Or is it benevolence? If only they you know, were more caring about someone besides themselves, then, then I would trust them more. And that's how you start to debug it. And then you can say, what behavior, what visible behavior in the world would you like them to show you so that you could trust them even more? And that's the thing you ask for. And when you feel that you can't trust somebody, it's hard to say, hey, I really want to trust you more. Could you be more trustworthy, please? Thanks so much. <laughs> that's not going to work. Yeah, it's like, what, what do you want me to do? Yeah, be specific. And so you, you would frame it up in one of these pillars. Absolutely. You'd say, hey, look, I, I really appreciate how, let's say they're highly reliable and highly benevolent, just not very competent. You say, hey, I really appreciate how, how much I can count on you to show up when you say you're going to show up, and I know you really care about me, and I'm really feeling kind of let down in a certain way, and it's starting to affect how I view you. And I figured I should tell you, because I know you'd, I'd want you to tell me, is this a good time to talk? And they'll say yes or no, or you'll set a time to talk. And you say, look, just to recap, I like this, and I like this, and I'm just I'm struggling over here. When you did thing X, when you delivered this code that didn't work, it really made me start to worry about how good you are. You're, you, know, you want to say the word competent. It sounds really harsh, but that is the point you're making. I'm wondering if the level of expertise that I need is higher than the level you're bringing, and maybe I'm setting you up for failure. Get that out on the table. And if you're going to build higher and higher trust in your relationships, you're going to have to step into some uncomfortable conversations. Things are going to have to get real. You're going to have to share what was previously not shared. You have to make visible what was previously not visible. And that is your internal state, your evaluation of them in these three areas. And then you're going to ask for what you want. It seems to me like if you're going to take this approach of the pillars, it's so much easier to do this as an internal exercise and to say, like, what can I do mm -hmm. differently so I could be trusted yep. amongst my peers, my family, my friends? Do you feel like people will go the distance and flip it around? and frame up a, a difficult discussion based on these three pillars. In your experience, are people using it in that way, or are they using it as kind of a self-accountability thing? I would say the most powerful thing you can do with this is start by asking them how you can be even better. Mm. 
And I would say 80% of the time, they'll get excited and enthusiastic and say, now, let's do me. How can I be better? Hey, dude, you opened the door, and now I can tell you what I want. But don't do it in a manipulative way. So here's the thing. The more I trust you, the more I feel a sense of trust toward you, the more you can tell me anything, and I'll take it well, because I trust you. You're highly reliable, you're highly competent, and I know you have my best interests at heart. And we tend to get defensive when we're hearing stuff from people we don't fully trust. And so even if you want to have a hard conversation with somebody else, you still want to start with yourself, play the inside game. And I've done this with clients more than once, kind of part of the routine now, is I'll say, hey, I always want to make sure I'm improving my game at all times. Maybe I've told them about trust. Maybe I haven't. I'll introduce it. And I'll say, hey, if you had to pick the one thing I could do even better at, if I could raise my game in either reliability or competence or benevolence, which one would you pick for me to work on? What's one thing I could do even better that would help you trust me even more than you already do? It's part of my eternal game of self-improvement. I had one guy say benevolence. I'm like, really? Tell me more. Because I thought I was pretty darn benevolent. And he said, yeah, Tom, I don't understand your pricing model. I don't see how you make money. So I don't know. You know, when you recommend something, are you getting like finder's fees under the table? Oh, well, if you don't know that, how course you'd have questions. <laughs> never knew that was even in his head until I broached this. I'm like, yeah, no, I never take finder's fees. And since then, when I have, I do have an affiliate relationship. I just disclose it up front. It's on my website, right? To make it really clear if you're a consultant, how the money flows into your hands is crucial to people trusting your advice. So glad he told me that. He was already inside of him. I didn't know about it until he said it. So I couldn't address it until we got it out. So I would say that would be the number one thing that our listeners here can make yourself even more trusted by your parents and your kids and your boss and your subordinates and your peers. Every so often, and only ask for one thing you can improve on. If you say, what can I do better? I'll give you a list of eight. (laughs) I did that once. I said, what can I do better? And this list came pouring forth. I'm like, slow down. Oh, yeah, yeah, this is too much. Like, it's too much to handle. <laughs> you know, and I, I don't want to set the expectation that I'm going to do eight things differently tomorrow. I doubt it. Yeah, I'm going to struggle to do one. So ask for one thing and then write it down. And then you better show some movement on that front. Because now you've asked for it. What expectation have you implicitly set? You've set the expectation that, now, hey, Thomas, I'd really appreciate you showing up on time or early for meetings instead of being five minutes late all the time. And I could say, I'm not late. Or I could say, huh, five minutes early. Gotcha. Okay. I'm going to work on that. And they're testing me, right? I'm going to prove now that I heard them and I'm going to change my behavior. Uh, I had one friend who became convinced I was perpetually late because of two high profile instances where I was and she ignored all the ones where I wasn't. So I had to, every time we met for like the next five meetings, I'll say, hey, notice what time it is. Hey, notice what time we were going to meet hey, so you'll notice I'm five minutes early, right? Okay. And I was trying not to be a jerk about it, but I really needed her to be conscious of the fact that I was, to notice I was being reliable so that I could have the reputation in her mind that my own behavior actually was earning me. If a company wants to get, like the workplace really wants to build a a culture of trust and just master these three pillars, what do you think are the best ways to integrate it? I mean, the one-on-ones and performance reviews kind of come to mind. Casual conversations, I mean, how how are you integrating some of these pillars into workplaces that you've worked with? I would say that there's one precondition for all these kinds of conversations about reliability and confidence and benevolence. And that has to do with psychological safety. Many of the listeners probably know that Google spent 
several years and millions of dollars doing an internal study to find out which of their teams were the most effective teams. And they found five variables that predicted team excellence, the most important of which was psychological safety, meaning can we have tough conversations? Can I try something new? Can I make a mistake? Can I raise my hand and ask for help? Can I disagree with everybody else on the team? Can I do all of those things without having my membership in the team put at risk? Will I be loved and accepted and kept in the embrace and even the love of the team as I'm doing these things that can be challenging to do? And the more the leader makes it safe to have the hard conversation, the more people become able to talk about reliability, competence, and so forth. So I'd say psychological safety is a huge precondition. We might talk about that for another podcast because there's a lot to it. And having done that, I would say if you've got a culture where we say the hard truth gently, if we can be hard on issues and very soft on people, if we presume good intentions from most people most of the time and mm-hmm. say, hey, you know, Fred, I, I have no doubt that you're doing your best and you're doing some things that are starting to make me question how much I can count on you. And I really want to clear the air between us. Can we talk about that? You know, that's the kind of approach that is much more likely to work than, you know, I need you to change your behavior. So, yeah. You don't give them a reason to change. Or they change out of fear or they change their surface behavior, but they don't do any kind of introspection and they don't get at the root of it. I believe that every culture can be an outstanding performance culture. I think every company can be an amazing company to work for. And it rests on the fact that most people, I mean 99% of people, want to show up and do a good job and be appreciated. And that means the work itself has to have at least a little bit of interest to it. If the work is boring, you've got to enrich that work so it's a little bit intellectually challenging. You've got to create enough emotional safety that we can have hard conversations about what's not working. And I think you've got to hold up a vision of excellence and challenge people to move towards it. I had one guy, Mike, was one of my students in my Becoming a Best Boss class. And I challenged him. He's like, I can't get these guys to improve. And I said, well, do I even agree on what good work is? I have a workbook called Manager's First Duty, and it walks you through how to have this conversation with your team. So he just had a staff meeting and said, so what is good work for us? I mean, what do our clients really want from us? He figured he'd need 10 minutes for that conversation. The team took an hour. They got so excited. They were on fire. They'd never had this conversation before. And they ended up, over the course of several weeks of talking about this, coming up with a model of, you know, excellent work for us is this, and the perfect instance of us supporting a client is this, and this is what good is. And, wow, okay, how can I help you? Well, you could score us. Okay. (laughs) They just invited him to measure their performance now that they define or helped co-define what work is. And if they go on the wrong direction and they're like, you know, Excellence is like perfect code. And like, dude, the client doesn't want perfect. We're not going to pay for that. That takes 10 times longer than good enough. Well, you're whacked. You're wrong. And you can challenge them from a position of love and safety and, and drive to a true definition of what the client values. And when you get that shared definition of good work, man, the team just lights up and they'll go to the wall for you if you let them. And, and so the, there's this spiral you have to work through. You've got to show up as trustable. You've got to learn how to trust them. You've got to create the psychological safety to have the hard trust conversations. And then you have to use that psychological safety and the high trust conversation to talk about the work and talk about excellence and talk about problems. Then you need to have a good problem-solving method. 
But anyway, now we're talking about my entire best boss curriculum, which is probably yeah, out don't, of scope don't, for this don't conversation. Don't give it away. Don't, you don't want to give it all away. I mean, yeah, you, you want people to go to the class, too. It takes me two hours a week for eight weeks just to get people their first pass through this material, and you probably want to take several passes to really master this stuff. So I'm not worried about giving it away. And I do want to make sure we stick close to our trust topic. So I know we've talked about the three pillars, reliability, competence, benevolence. I've talked about how you can ask for feedback. I've talked on how you can use the three pillars to help you understand a relationship that's giving you trouble. And I've talked about how you can create a culture of higher trust by understanding what trust is made up of. What else do you want to talk about, Brandon, here on the call? I mean, I think you you covered everything. I really want you to kind of frame up why why do we want a culture of trust? Why like what is what is the effect going to look like? What are the interactions going to feel like? Are we going to you know attract more people that are like us and and we're going to do business faster and better? Like what what are the effects of all of this? Right. So the, the what is the payoff? I might have wanted to open with that. Maybe next time I will. Thank you. Great question. So remember, trust isn't blind trust. I don't mean you just like hope for the best or you just trust everybody regardless and. and that's an invitation to be taken advantage of. When you can trust people very highly on a basis of knowing they are trustworthy, things can go much faster. You don't have to write that CYA memo where you sort of cover your posterior. You don't have to explain, rationalize, and justify everything in triplicate. You don't have to have as much bureaucracy or checking of, of detail. It's a way of engineering quality into the conversations early. So let's say you've got a very highly accountable person that you trust very, very highly. You can say, hey, will you do this for me by Tuesday? They say yes, and based on their track record, you're done. You don't have to put a tickler in anywhere. You don't have to go back and remind them three times. You're just, you get to relax because you know they're going to do it, and they're going to do it with quality, and if they have a question, they'll come to you. And you only know that because you trust them, and you only trust them because they've demonstrated it. The high-trust organization is a high-speed, high-quality organization, and it outperforms competitors. In fact, if you looked at the statistics in the opening chapter or two of uh, Stephen M. R. Covey's The Speed of Trust. Speed of Trust, great book. Right? Uh, he points out that when you measure trust levels, correlates very highly with higher sales, higher profits, higher stock price, and a much higher level of, frankly, happiness and fulfillment at work. You know, we spend more awake time with our coworkers than with our families. I, I think if you can move into a culture of higher trust from wherever you are currently, your people will perform better. They'll be happier, more fulfilled. You'll be able to recruit and retain top people. And your customers are going to be able to tell the difference as well. So I, I think that absolutely worth doing for its own sake. And it's worth doing for the sake of the business. Well said. Well, hey, Thomas, this has been an awesome discussion. We're going to have to wrap up just because we're out of time. Where can people read more of your work and, and figure out what you're doing, attend some of your live workshops? Uh, anything you want to tell listeners before we wrap? Well, my main website is tomonleadership.com. It's also the name of my newsletter. It comes out once a month with actionable guidance. Everything I write is timeless and is intended to be action-oriented. So it gives you a new way of looking at things and or some specific behaviors you can engage in that'll drive new and better results. And uh, I do have a talk that I encourage people to attend called The Only Universal Truth of Leadership. And it reveals a new way of thinking about leadership that unlocks a completely new way of leading your teams and driving for excellence. So you can see details for that on tomonleadership.com. And uh, of course, you should always check the webinar page at 
zenmhr.com for some of the replays of my recent webinars with you. Yeah, and, and actually, I was going to say you have the we did the only universal truth of leadership. We did like a forty-five minute webinar on that about a year ago, and that you just killed it on that one. So I want to encourage people to go check out that, and then you know, ten the live workshops that you're doing on the only universal truth of leadership. I mean, it's just it's great content. You got to check it out. Thanks so much, Brandon. I really appreciate being here, and I look forward to the next one. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks for listening to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast. Subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our blog at www.zeniumhr.com forward slash blog and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to hear about the latest in HR and leadership. The information on today's episode is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as legal or customized advice for you or your organization. This podcast is hosted and fully produced by Brandon Laws, that's me, and created and owned by Zenium Resources, Inc. For more information or to contact us, visit www.zeniumhr.com.